Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monaco's program all about the built environment. I'm your host, Carlotta Rebello. Coming up... Once we transform a space with art, you get people to slow down and they rethink maybe their existence in this space. You know, it's kind of like a wow factor. Like, hey, I didn't notice this. How can art help us experience our cities differently? This week's episode looks at the power of arts in our urban environment. We'll visit a lights festival in Singapore, which connects people through artworks with the city-state's public spaces. Then we explore a former train yard, which has been transformed into an emerging arts neighborhood in Switzerland. And we hear how art fairs can be a great way to bring new life to neglected buildings in cities. Plus, we look at the role of temporary art installations in connecting us with our surroundings. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Carlotta Rebello. We start today in Singapore, where the annual Light Tonight Festival brings artworks, live music and family activities into public spaces. Organized by the city-state's National Gallery, the free event aims to foster a love of art by breaking down social, financial and physical barriers for people. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett went along to find out more. I'm going to take you up to this very special artwork by the late artist Lee Wen. Lee Wen is an artist who is prominent for his performance art. He's very well known for the Yellow Man series. Singapore's Light Tonight Public Arts Festival hosts more than 60 artworks and programmes across the city's civic district. These include live music, light shows on famous Singapore monuments and playful public art installations. Fazrullah Majid, one of the festival programmers, is showing me around. We start at the National Gallery. It's an interactive artwork. It's called Ping Pong Go Round. I think it was first showcased in uh, Korea and you actually get to play ping pong on a round table. We found it very interesting that there are two ways that people kind of like play the game when it's in a circular table. Some people still want to play it like a ping pong match, while others will try to kind of like play volleying, you know, you kind of like pass the ball to each other and try to keep the ball in play for as long as they can. The idea behind this uh, ping pong table for Lee Wen is that he's trying to, like if you look at the table right, in a circular manner like this, if you kind of like forget that you're supposed to play ping pong on it, what does the table actually look like? What kind of table? I mean, is it like a dining table or maybe a conference table perhaps? So he's trying to elicit this kind of playful conversations with the uh, festival goers or with the people who interact with the table. You want to have a go? Sure. The artworks are diverse in theme, size and style, but they are all presented in public spaces outside of traditional galleries. Even inside the National Gallery building, the festival presents artworks in hallways and corridors that are usually just functional spaces. Their setting is more casual, more loud and more interactive than a typical gallery. Also unlike a normal gallery, visitors are free to have their own personalised interaction with the art. Light Tonight guides festival goers through the exhibits, but avoids prescribing precisely how they should be consumed. The main aim of the uh, festival is to cultivate new art audiences within Singapore specifically and even Southeast Asia. And I guess Singapore doesn't really have a museum-going culture. And we have found that when people come to the festival, right, it's actually the first step or the first meeting that they get with the art institution. 
And is one of the big ways that you aim to do that through bringing art into public spaces and other spaces that maybe people don't usually expect to see art, like in shopping malls? Do you think that attracts people who might not necessarily feel that they could or should go to an art gallery? Public art is something that even before the festival, Singapore has always been experimenting with that. I mean, if you look around the uh, civic district and also maybe even around Raffles Place, we have a lot of public art, you know, a lot of sculptures, even sculptures by Salvador Dali and all that. But in terms of the areas around the gallery itself, because it's so near to the gallery and the other art institutions that we have, so we try to bring art out of the museum if people do not come to the museum to see the art, then let's bring it out to them. So it's in a way we're trying to have a conversation with them and hopefully turning them into new appreciators of art and cultivate that love for our museums or museum-going culture. Right now we're approaching these red inflatable sculptures. If you look at them... Outside, on the green opposite the gallery known as the Padang, is Kumani Nahapan's Wings of Change, a scattering of inflatable red sculptures of different sizes. One is huge, at least three metres tall, others thigh-high. They're designed to look like the seeds of the tropical saga tree. If you look across the Padang, right, you see those steps, the city hall steps? There's a lot of historical happenings, uh, events that happen there, like, for example, the Japanese surrender... Happened there, right. and they were, you know, they the Padang is usually closed to the public, but during light tonight it's opened, perhaps for picnics or ball games. Singaporeans also come here each night throughout the festival to watch the huge light shows projected onto the gallery and other nearby buildings. It's just one of the familiar public spaces that festival goers are encouraged to look at differently and more deliberately. So right now we're at the uh, thoroughfare at Funan, the shopping mall. So what we see here is this long stretch of walkway that people kind of like pass through every day in their daily commute, right? So we have this artwork by the artist Nikkei. So she's a Singaporean-based illustrator and designer. You can see these illustrations of toys going through everyday life. Like on our left, we'll see some toys, figurines, in little cars going across a driveway, you know. Usually Singapore, the spaces that we have are functional. Right, it's a city, right? So what we try to do is we try to get people to slow down, really, and to relook at where they are. Let's say, for example, if you always go to a certain place or go through a certain passageway, you know, or thoroughfare, and the idea is to get from point A to point B, and you don't usually kind of like look around or notice anything. But once we transform a space with art, you get people to slow down and they rethink maybe their existence in this space you know it's kind of like a wow factor like hey I didn't notice this and surprisingly some people even though we put these artworks out there right like for example the thoroughfare at Funan they don't notice it sometimes it's because they're always on their phone until one of their friends kind of nudge them and say hey look this space has changed there's something here Most of the artworks at Light Tonight are site-specific, meaning they're planned and often designed with a particular location in mind. In the National Gallery's Padang Atrium, several wire figures by local sculptor Victor Chan hang from the vast glass ceiling, encouraging visitors to look up rather than just pass through. Artist Sarah Chu Jing took inspiration from the history and texts inside Singapore's Rotunda Library and Archive, where her piece Symphony of Order was displayed. Symphony of Order actually explores the intricate interplay of order and unspoken laws within social settings. 
So what you're looking at, um, you're actually seeing a staged dining scene comprising of 12 individuals within a family setting. And the entire immersive experience is actually captured using a 360 degree camera and then projected on the ceiling of the Rotunda Gallery. It wouldn't be as didactic as it would in a museum where you have rooms to go through, right? Here you are moving through the space quite freely and then also kind of meandering through and you get a choice as to how you want to move around that space, how you, which works you want to see first. You know, it's so interesting that we're talking about this because just the other day when I was in the space, and this is something I love doing, being around the audience, listening in on what they would say, right? You know, there were kids that suddenly, you know, just lay down on the floor because it was just much easier for them to view the work when they're lying down. So I think seeing sites like that and then looking at, you know, children kind of gasping when they're looking at the artwork and seeing, you know, identifying with maybe some of the characters even, that to me is quite magical. Children are free to play throughout Light Tonight, encouraged to look and to touch. Both Sarah and Fazrullah say the festival brings in more family groups and young couples than they would usually expect to see at a traditional art exhibition. The thought of entering an art gallery or a museum to look at artworks where typically you don't find many people around, it's usually less crowded, it could come across as a little bit intimidating for people who are not always exposed to art or perhaps they don't frequently visit art installations and exhibitions. But having it framed in such a manner, you know, the way Light Tonight has kind of organized the happenings around even food trucks outside, you know, even live performances, kind of like punctuating the experience of looking at art pieces in the various spaces. I think that really transformed the way the audience then approached the works. By bringing art into public spaces, Light Tonight takes much of the exclusivity out of art. Parents don't need to worry about their children being too loud in a hushed gallery, and busy professionals can enjoy artworks on their commute. And it encourages us to see our cities not only as functional spaces, but also as sites of inspiration and of fun. For Monocle Radio in Singapore, I'm Lillian Fawcett. Lillian, thank you, and thanks to Tio Wei Yong for the Symphony of Order soundtrack. Next, we're off to Manila as the city is gearing up to play host to Art Fair Philippines, which starts this weekend. Unlike many of its Asian counterparts, instead of taking place in a big convention hall, the event takes over a multi-story car park in the city centre. Monocle's Asia editor James Chambers joined me a little bit earlier to talk about the importance of venues in connecting people not only with the art itself, but with the city too. I started by asking James about Art Fair Philippines and what makes it so special. Yeah, there are a lot of art fairs around the world and most international cities will have one. In Asia, we have plenty. And if anyone ever asks me which is my favourite, I always immediately volunteer Art Fair Philippines. It starts this weekend in Manila, in the capital. Sadly, I'm unable to make it this year, but it is probably one of the most unique art fairs in an Asian city. And part of the reason is because the venue itself is a multi-story 
car park. It takes place in a district of Manila called Makati. It's a kind of an upscale district. And one of the car parks there essentially gets turned over to the art fair and you you know experience the different exhibitors and booths by you know walking up and down this repurposed municipal car park and it really does make you feel a part of the city you're in you don't just fly into the philippines turn up at a huge venue see some art and then fly out it really does involve you in the city in which you're in It is through events such as these that we get to actually experience cities in a different way. And this is not particular to just the Philippines, but across other art fairs as well. Yes, I think, I don't know whether it's a trend, it's becoming more and more apparent, but cities are using fairs and biennales as a way to encourage visitors to explore and to get out and about. I was just up in Chiang Rai, which is a city in the north of Thailand. People might know Chiang Mai. This is the kind of smaller city close to the border. It's famous for being near the Golden Triangle, where uh, Thailand meets Myanmar. And what was nice about this is that they had their events you know, spread out across the city and also making use of venues that you know don't immediately lend themselves to art so one of the exhibitions i went to see involved you know taking an hour drive outside of the city to what was essentially an abandoned school and the school had been repurposed to show digital art and film so not only does it make it very unique you get to see a different part of town and it actually adds to the experience and the artwork that you're seeing. I think a lot of the problem with exhibitions of art is that they can be very fleeting. You know, you walk into this white box, this white space, you take a quick look around and then you leave. But if your journey and your experience involves this kind of discovery, this car journey, it kind of really does add to the experience of the art you go there to see. And that's precisely the question I wanted to ask you, James, because we often have talked about, you know, how through temporary art installations, you can renew the sense of place in a city and make people experience, uh, particularly in public areas, their cities in a different way. But here through these examples, it really shows how the choice of venue can be almost as important as what's on show as well. I think the venue, at least to me, is super important. I mean, I lived in Hong Kong for eight years. And though the city is very proud of its annual art fair, Art Basel, and it is the biggest art fair in Asia, I must say personally, I never looked forward to going because it takes place at the humongous conference center in Hong Kong. And it does become much more of a trade fair than an art fair. Now, I don't know whether there is any difference, but it is the same venue that is used for the watch fair, the jewelry fair, the toy fair. And then you go there to see art and there is vast amounts of booths and it becomes a real slog, a real chore to try and walk down every single lane and cover every single floor to see everything that's displayed. And so, you know, you end up getting extremely tired and abandoning your trip, and then you go without seeing half of what is on display. So I would certainly encourage cities and organizers to think creatively and think beyond conference centers. It's very much the same in Seoul, where they have the art fair in September, the Korean International Art Fair. 
it seems to be a competition to see, you know, how big they can be, how many booths and how many exhibitors they can get into these vast halls. And I think there needs to be some kind of recognition, actually, that an art fair is different to a trade fair. And it's not just about volume. James Chambers there. Thank you. You're listening to The Urbanist. And now to the French-speaking Swiss city of Lausanne, where a former train yard has been transformed into an emerging arts neighbourhood and public square. Monocle's Laura Kramer sent us this report. I'm standing in the middle of a huge plaza in Switzerland's fourth largest city, where two years ago a whole new district emerged in the 25,000 square meter space next to the city's main train station. Platform Dies is the new arts district. The name is a nod to the train station's nine platforms, making it a natural extension of the city's transportation hub. The goal was to create a one-stop cultural destination. Here is Laura Regnez from Lausanne Tourism. It brings together three cantonal museums, the Museum of Fine Arts, the Museum of Design and Applied Arts, and the Museum of Photography. But more than three museums, it's more like a lively and animated place where there are restaurants, cafes, a program of events. I think it's a place where it's meant to be yeah, more than that and it's also meant to be a square where people do sports, where people pass by with the bikes, etc., before it was an enclosed space and now it's open to three parts of the city. So people just pass by and can go from one part of the city to another passing by this place. It's become an integral part of the Lausanne community featuring a welcoming promenade adorned with restaurants, terraces, book and gift shops and arcades. To understand how the site is reshaping the city's urban fabric, I caught up with Olivier Mueller, head of marketing and communication at Platform Dies. It's a whole new neighborhood, a whole new district. And of course the population here has been enthusiastic about having these beautiful new buildings, the beautiful new museums. They're very proud of it, I guess. Plus it's a huge playground in a way. You can do some skateboard, come and have a drink in the terrace, revel in the sun in the summer. I think really in terms of urbanism, this was closed before. This was a huge uh, workshop for the repair of locomotives with no access at all for the population. And now you have about one kilometer of space where you can walk by and which is accessible. So for the na- lots of neighbors here, it's as if they had a, I don't know, kind of central, new central park opened just in front of your house where you had before railways. So that's very important. Plus in terms of Tourism, visibility for the city, it just is a strong message saying Lausanne has now a huge, important museum district instead of three museums, which were very cool, very important, very old, but much smaller and scattered around the city in different buildings. And it makes it so much easier. You get off the train station, it's what, 100 meters? 200 uh, 200 meters, like five minutes by foot. Swiss people love trains. Now it's a small country and trains, our trains, are supposed to be the best in the world, or amongst the best in the world, so do we think, very accurate and very large network. So it's very accessible, it's perfect, and, and it's a beautiful location. Laura Ragones again. Before, these three museums existed, but they were located in different places of Lausanne. And now that they're all together, they try to make a program that 
have the same theme. So, for example, this winter, the exhibitions on the three museums were about immersive art. The next exhibitions that start in March will be about surrealism, because this year is the 100-year anniversary of the Surrealist Manifesto. So now all the exhibition, these museums work together, live together, and they have the same program, the same theme of program. So it's really nice. The aim is to make art and culture accessible to all by engaging with the community and offering a mix of avant-garde and mainstream exhibitions. Olivier Muller says Platform Dies strives to foster a love for art from an early age. We think if we manage to make it a funny, a cool place for kids of today, where they think, oh, going to a museum is completely normal and part of my everyday life. For them, going to a museum will be completely natural here. You would say, oh, let's go to Platform List and maybe just have a beer or, uh, and a pizza together with a family or an ice cream. Or maybe let's have fun in immersion. And so we will have managed, and it's a long-term reflection, we will have managed to shift a little bit this very exclusive culture that we have like many other museums in the world lots of people feel i don't belong there we will have managed to say going to platform this is fun is normal it's this thing that we do because we want to do it we have fun there and we're going to enjoy ourselves and not be scared or feel excluded because if you get in there you have to be educated or know what it's about and never talk too loud and stuff we like immersion because the kids are shouting And we think it's fun as well. For Monocle Radio in Lausanne, I'm Laura Kramer. And finally today, how can temporary art installations change the way we interact with the space around us? One place that knows a thing or two about non-permanent structures is Black Rock City, the area which hosts the famous Burning Man Festival. As part of the event, practitioners and artists are invited to submit design proposals to the many structures which will form the final version of this temporary urban landscape. Aside from the man itself, one of the most significant buildings at the festival is the temple, where revelers get together to pay tribute to loved ones and make new connections. Anthony Fieldman is a partner at design firm Dialogue, who submitted the design for this year's temple based on the idea of reconnecting with nature. I started by asking Anthony to explain the importance of this structure. Well, it's important to know that there are hundreds of art installations installed every year at Burning Man, created purposely for it. And most of these are original. Some of them return year after year. But the temple is, among all structures, including the man himself, the most important building. And it's the most important building because it has an extreme emotional significance to the people of Black Rock City in that it is the center for mourning and community and catharsis. What happens is no less than about 8,000 square feet of surface ends up being covered every single year with ink and tributes and shrines and all sorts of memorabilia where people honor people they've lost. And so it becomes a critical means of bonding people together and their own personal journey to healing. 
talk to me a bit about the vision here behind the proposal from Dialogue, because it is quite this amazing, uh, you describe it as a unique collection of trees. And as you were just describing, it is a super emotional and significant site. But you kind of need to be able to rethink traditional religious structures and to appeal to everyone, regardless of their faith. So I'm just interested in the design considerations that had to be made there. Well, that's exactly it. There is so much symbolism in architecture, and obviously that's what I do for a living, that I am forever trying to find things that transcend the specific, the specific of a culture, the specific of a country, the specific of a even a built tectonic language, and to get back at the root of something that we can all relate to, something that's common to everyone. And what's interesting, if you go back far enough in the history of temple or spiritual or religious buildings, is that before buildings, the forests themselves constituted those sacred spaces because nature was considered sacred. And so you'll find pretty much every culture on earth has some version of what we call sacred groves. And so the idea behind the sacred grove was to try to get beyond image or visuals and connect to something much deeper which is to find our way in a forest together into our own little corner, whether it's between three trees or tucked against one or under a canopy or in a clearing, and to find moments of repose, quiet, either community or really just isolation, because everybody has different needs. But it was to get beyond the building language of temples and back to something much more common. Do you think the nature of this setting, so the fact that you knew from the beginning that you are building something that's not permanent and that has all this significance, do you think it allows you for a bit more freedom? Let's say that if you were designing a permanent structure in a city, does it allow you to be a bit more flexible with your creativity? Well, it certainly allows for some things that don't have to be considered permanent, right? And so when it comes to the structure itself, or when it comes to the materiality, these things have to last a few weeks or even a month, not years. At the same time, there are many other considerations that actually become more constraining around ideas of the temporariness of the building insofar as it has to burn. And so there's a lot of science between considerations of how you design something to burn, right? Because the temple at the end burns, and that's the end of the catharsis. That's really the culmination of the journey of the individuals who decide to contribute to the temple by bringing their offerings to it. I would say that, like anything else, the considerations of space and materiality and emotional resonance are primary, and I would say that's not different whether the thing is temporary or not. Uh, if you recall, the Eiffel Tower itself was meant to stand just for the expo and, you know, a hundred and some odd years later, it's still there. So I think there are some permanent aspects of design consideration, but also certainly some freedoms when you don't have certain constraints like permanence or even a client demanding a certain program. Now, one of the things that's common to Burning Man and the philosophy behind building Black Rock City is the sustainable credentials as well. And that applies to all these installations that take place during the event. I know that here, that was also a big part of your project was, you know, the sustainability angle and how you were trying to use solar generators and others to minimize that carbon footprint. Talk to me about that sustainable side of it. Well, 
there's a, a lot to this and because you're creating something temporary you don't want to overburden the carbon footprint that it could create and leave one of the things we were doing was because again i have a lot of relationships with people on the builder side was the intention was to use recycled wood or aspects of unused lumber from job sites so there was a recycling component to it certainly we wanted to power all of the lights which really are used only at nighttime by using a solar generator burning man itself the art group artery has been experimenting with a lot of on-site solar generation and that actually is part of the future of burning man itself and so they were making available an array to power the temple there is a fundamental principle at burning man which is leave no trace lnt and leave no trace means as part of the deal for using public land is that when Burning Man's over, there is not a trace. There's not a zip tie. There's not a bolt head. There's not even water spilled on what we call playa, which is the ancient leg bed floor. And so the leave no trace plan is incredibly important for the recycling and recyclability of whatever we were going to do. So we were going to recycle everything and then make it available for other uses. And the nice thing about the temple is that it burns. And so really, we're just talking about recycling ash for the most part and not really recycling the wood itself. Anthony Fieldman there. Thank you for joining us on The Urbanist. And that's all for this week's episode. You can subscribe to the show on all good podcast platforms to get new episodes every week. And you can subscribe to Monocle magazine for regular reports on all things architecture and urbanism too. Just visit monocle.com. Andrew Tuck will be back next week. The Urbanist is produced by me, Carlotta Rabello, and by David Stevens, who also edits the show. Goodbye, and thank you for listening, City Lovers. City Lovers.